0: Welcome to BIV Today, the business podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden, and today I have in studio with me the Chief Commissioner of the BC Treaty Commission, Celeste Haldane. She's joined the show previously to discuss the treaty's annual reports, its work, other issues facing Indigenous communities throughout the province, and she joins me now to talk about what the organization has been up to in 2019. Celeste, thanks so much for coming on the show once again.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I always appreciate coming into studio, especially on a typical Vancouver day uh, in December. And for me, it's always an honor to be at home within my traditional territory and a territory that we share with our Hukuminum-speaking relatives, the Squamish and tsleil So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you again for coming in. It's always great to have a chance to speak with you in person. And as we have before, what we're talking about is the annual report, which was recently released. I'm going to ask you kind of a global question, but really what's been going on with the Treaty Commission and the state of treaty negotiations over the last year?
1: So I have to say there's been uh, significant developments and milestones uh, this year, of course, working on building off of 2018, but we've had seven negotiation tables move into stage five, which represent 21 Indian Act bands, which is significant. So now we have uh, 14 tables in stage five and 12 tables in stage four. I'd also have to say some of the most notable developments uh, this year is around the rights recognition policy. So this old notion of seed release surrender, or extinguishment, as some want to call it, that's gone. So we have a political will to ensure that their treaties are a living, breathing, evolving document. And, and it's about a relationship. And so as our needs change, as community needs change, uh, as the relationship moves forward, there's an opportunity for treaties to be uh, evolving. And I think that is significant. Of course, relationships, that'll be an
0: ongoing development, but how critical is the adoption and implementation of UNDRIP at various political levels to really starting or
1: renewing a relationship? Well, I think it's significant given the fact that British Columbia is the first uh, jurisdiction to co-develop between uh, the province of British Columbia and First Nations leadership in British Columbia. I think that's significant. And what that highlights for me is when we work together, we are better together. And the framework for the declaration and the legislation, it's about setting the stage in a way we should have a long time ago. And it's about ensuring that there's equity and equality uh, amongst uh, the British Columbians as well as First Nations in BC. I do understand that the federal government is now uh, moving forward with their development of legislation, and I believe they have a one-year timeframe. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, how they draw on the expertise and the experience that British Columbia has. But also, um, you know, I look at... The declaration, of course, the United Nations. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that's part of their Treaty Commission mandate as well. And so for me, I see this as foundational and treaty negotiations, because it's treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements, being complementary to the legislation. And it's a way to operationalize uh, the legislation and the declaration.
0: We've spoken about before how it's really going to be communities in various nations making the decision for themselves, whether they want to approach negotiations or pursue treaty negotiations. Do you think the implementation of UNDRIP might change the willingness of various nations to approach that? Any clear implications for the treaty process?
1: I actually uh, would say that any implications are going to be really positive because the genesis of, or the foundation rather, of the declaration as well as the treaty negotiations process here in British Columbia Are of the same foundation, i.e. self-determination, self-governance, access and fair access to lands and resources, uh, joint decision making, co-management. And that's envisioned in the legislation, as well as that's a, a fundamental component of treaty negotiations here in BC. So I see this as perhaps... Um, speeding up the process, so to speak, because those nations that have been working so hard negotiating treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements have that capacity just to continue to run forward. And um, like I said earlier, I do believe that the treaty negotiations process and the legislation are complementary.
0: Now, interestingly, of course, as you said, this is an important first step, but I imagine it doesn't eliminate all challenges, what are some of the present hurdles to successful negotiations and successful two-way relationships?
1: Yes, it's not all rosy, that's for sure. Um, So I think part of the uh, relationship building is again ensuring that it's meaningful and respectful and built on those uh, foundational principles both in uh, the declaration but as well as how we want to move forward together collectively and when we work together we are definitely stronger together and that's where I see um, treaty negotiations being the sort of the foundation to move the relationship forward but there are some there are some challenges there's Um, without a doubt, I would say, um, you know, nation to nation engagement is something that's really important that needs to be done. And again, that's nation led. So, you know, ensuring that uh, capacity is built within communities, because in British Columbia, as you know, um, we have those that are in treaty negotiations and those that are pursuing other economic development agreements or reconciliation agreements. And I've always stated and the Treaty Commission's view has always been that each nation has their ability to pursue whichever path works for that community. And again, it's about self-determination. It's about reconciliation the way that they see fit. And I think the some of the other challenges that we might see is... Um, You know, again, it's been political will has been so integral to moving the dial on reconciliation. And when it comes to having political alignment, you see that alignment working really well between the province of British Columbia and the federal government. I think, you know, some of the challenges, some of the things we should be looking for is the fact now we're in a minority situation at the federal level. So this, as I've always articulated, is anything to do with reconciliation should be nonpartisan. So how are the parties going to work together across party lines to make sure we're building a better, brighter uh, future in Canada, including everyone?
0: When thinking about economic development from a more macro level, of course, I think about some of the other stakeholders who may be at the table and business is often at the table for various projects. Do you think that the dial has been moved in terms of the general business community embracing reconciliation, embracing things like UNDRIP in a sincere manner?
1: From what I've seen, yes. And I mean, that's been a shifting conversation for uh, decades. You know, again, it's comes, some of it is out of litigation. But I do think that the dial has uh, shifted, so to speak, um, where business actually are meaningfully engaging, industry is meaningfully engaging, recognizing that they have to build that relationship and that partnership. And it does come from a place of sincerity. And you know, when I look at some of the discussion points out there with regards to the declaration, there's a lot of um, uncertainty, I think, or skepticism around what free, prior, and informed consent looks like. And some often view that as um, having a veto, But I would say that's not the case. It's about sitting down at the table at the same time everyone else is with all the information and making sure that this is something that can be built together and making sure that there is prosperity and the sharing of prosperity. And so the declaration when it comes to free prior informed consent and the legislation, it's nothing to be feared because businesses and industry who have already been engaging with Indigenous partners already know how to get to that place of consent. And yes, there might be some challenges along the way with, uh, and it's about working through that relationship and making sure you have a strong partnership with your Indigenous Um, partners, but as well as making sure that uh, Indigenous partners also have a good relationship with industry. And I think moving forward, uh, you'll see those business, uh, you'll see industry who've actually been building those relationships, not having an issue with uh, the declaration.
0: We've seen some examples. I haven't seen too many, but I'm seeing it a little bit more frequently. Various businesses or maybe business associations themselves agreeing to adopt the principles of UNDRIP, um, agreeing to adopt other various principles, really acknowledging reconciliation as a priority within their respective organizations. Do you think that that is a good place for businesses to maybe start in efforts toward reconciliation?
1: Oh, absolutely, because I believe strongly that it's toned from the top. And once you've adopted uh, those principles, and it's not just about adopt, because I think that's great, adopting the principles and building out a reconciliation action plan. Uh, so to speak, for uh, your organization, but it's about how, what is the metric? What is the accountability principle? So when you're doing your day-to-day business, how are you meeting those objectives? And I think that's where, again, uh, leadership in organizations will become uh, integral and crucial to make sure that they are um, leading with sort of um, setting examples for uh, other industry partners or other Uh, stakeholders in the process um, because it's about building best practices, but it's also ensuring that in your day-to-day line of operation that you are breathing life into the declaration. And um, I think the more that we can showcase that in our partnerships or um, to share best practices amongst different organizations the better off I believe we will be. And it is a great step in the right direction.
0: You mentioned at the start that your 2019 year built off of the success from 2018. How are we setting up the 2020 year? What
1: are some of the things you expect from the year ahead? So um, it would be, again, supporting those 14 tables that are in advanced stages, so stage five of treaty negotiations, and ensuring that we're building a successful path and helping the parties build a successful path to actually close on those negotiations within the next couple of years. Um, I do believe that the in 2019, or budget 2019, rather, the issue around loan forgiveness is something that we're all anticipating and waiting for because that was a commitment of 1.4 billion dollars in the 2019 federal budget and so that's something that I'm definitely keeping my eye on just because uh, it is uh, it has been a real contentious issue within treaty negotiations as well as it tends to be a lightning rod in community as communities move forward with Uh, treaty votes and ratification. So ensuring that the federal government delivers, and I'm absolutely confident that they will, um, because again, it's looking at how are we reinvesting back into communities that so desperately need it, as well for those nations who, for whatever their reasons, have decided that their path forward may not include uh, treaty negotiations. They're perhaps Uh, on a different path of self-determination, but they shouldn't be saddled with that debt that sits on their books because it does impact their ability to build uh, economic partnerships because it does sit as a collectible. And I think that will be really, really important to alleviate those nations. Um, to ensure that that debt is taken care of. And then that way they can move forward and prosper and share prosperity with everyone. Yeah. Tell me a little bit
0: more about that. Obviously, at more than a billion dollars, it's a big number, but at the individual nation level, what would loan forgiveness mean for the economic health and for economic opportunities of nations?
1: Well, it's a real reinvestment back into their community. So being able to, um, you know, whether it's a half a million or a million dollars and some, it's quite a bit more. To be able to actually reinvest that back into their communities in the ways that they see fit, I think that has tremendous value. It's also about lifting up communities, so building that capacity that's you know, so desperately required in some instances, but it's about being able to prioritize whether communities want to invest in education or health and knowing that they will have the flexibility to do that based on ensuring that that loan is uh, forgiven. And again, it's about community setting the priorities that best suit their needs at that time. And I think it's a really important reinvestment into Indigenous communities.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show. As always, really appreciate your insight.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: That's Celeste Haldane, Chief Commissioner of the BC Treaty Commission.